Today's shir is sponsored by Mrs. Menashehoff's mother, Mrs. Chedvedeh. She's sponsoring the shir in honor of the 34th yard site of her mother, Fanny Bas Yaakov. So our learning should uh, serve as an aliyah for her neshama. Special thank you as well to Torah Anytime. For those of you who have called or texted or emailed that you've seen the shirim on Torah Anytime, Baruch Hashem, they're doing amazing work, getting thousands upon thousands of shirim out throughout the entire world. So a special thank you to them for helping uh, spread this shir and many others. <coughs> and the topic this evening is challenging relationships. I want to uh, preface with the introduction, this is one of the most amazing studies that I've ever seen because probably it's one of the most amazing studies that we have on record. This comes from the Harvard Gazette. This is an article on April 11, 2017, entitled, Good Genes Are Nice, But Joy Is Better. Back in 1938, Scientists began tracking the health of 268 sophomores who were attending Harvard University. And their goal was to track their lives for as long as possible and to try to get a, a little bit of an insight into who are the people that live long and healthy and vibrant lives and who are those people that are unhealthy and die young. And maybe we could find some of the clues for overall healthy existence. They followed these men for almost 80 years. This study has been going strong since the beginning in 1938. It's been through four different directors. The present director is a fellow by the name of Dr. Robert Waldinger. They've been tracking physical, mental, intellectual health, They've been speaking to the physicians of these men, talking to them and their spouses and their children, now their grandchildren. Out of the original 268 volunteers for this study, there are only 19 still alive, and these 19 are in their mid-90s. So when they first started this, they were assuming that biologically, or based on one's DNA, that would probably determine how long they would live, how well they would do, the surprising finding, this is a quote from Dr. Waldinger, the surprising finding is that our relationships and how happy we are in our relationships has a powerful influence on our health. Taking care of your body is important, but tending to your relationships is a form of self-care too. That, I think, is the revelation. So I was very happy to hear this for two reasons. First off, that means you don't have to exercise to be healthy. <laughs> Just have good relationships. All this nourish kind with walking three times a week. Yeah. But the amazing thing is, is that after almost 80 years of research, the conclusion is more than people's cholesterol levels when they were in their 50s, more than genetics, the thing that plays the greatest role in how long we live how healthy we are and how happy we are are the relationships that we're in. 
So with that as a background, I think it's Kedai, it's worthwhile to jump into Parshas Vayera, and uh, hopefully we'll share some of the insights we find in the Parsha into making relationships that are decent, hopefully better, because overall that is the, uh, the destiny of our happiness and of our health. The first step is the realization that it's very, very difficult to know where somebody else is in life. The other day, my, my seven-year-old took my glasses and she put them on. And she's like, wow, Tati, you are blind. And the answer is, yes, I am. I am very blind. But her looking through my lenses, it, it was a distorted world. Now, for me, without my glasses on, I could barely see anything. Trying to look through someone else's lenses is a very hard thing to do. There's a, there's a famous Indian proverb. It says, you can't judge a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. And at that point, you could do whatever you want because you're a mile away and he has no shoes. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is, that goes back to the Mishnah in Perkyavos. There's a famous Mishnah. Source number two. Do not judge your friend until you've been in his place. And when is that? When are we in somebody else's place? The answer is simply, never. Says the Bartanura, one of the famous commentaries in the Mishnah, he says, If you see your friend or your child or your spouse, come into a nisayo and some kind of challenge, and they fail, and they fail miserably. Do not judge them in an uh, unfavorably way. Until you come to that same test, and you overcome it. So until I could somehow make my brain chemistry the exact same as yours, and have my, my upbringing and my parents and everything that I've been through the exact same as yours, I can never really judge you, because I have no clue what you're experiencing, I have no clue what your challenges are. The Tiferes Yisrael, one of the, one of the more contemporary commentaries in the Mishnah, he applies this in a different sense. He says that, When you're in charge of a community, if you're a rabbi, or if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, and somebody makes a major mistake, and you need to do something about it. It's your responsibility. Shvot oso bechemla, judge him with compassion. Don't look down upon him. Ovel titstar a rifiono. Instead of feeling angry, or instead of feeling, what a, what a loser, I can't believe he did that. I should have tsar, I should feel pain on his weakness, that he wasn't able to withstand the challenge. Because I haven't been in his place, and I don't know how he views life. Now, this is a, it's almost trite by now. We can't judge people. But to live by that principle, and to live by that principle when it comes to a relationship with someone you're very close with, is very, very difficult to do is we're judging people all the time. Now in Western society, we're big into the notion of, let's not be judgmental. Is that a Torah philosophy? Let's not be judgmental? The answer is no. We believe in, 
looking around and evaluating life and asking constantly, is this the right thing to do? Is this the wrong thing to do? We have a moral compass. To say you should be non-judgmental means you should be amoral. You should be very judgmental. Always looking into what is the right thing to do, what's the right path to take. But when it comes to really putting myself in someone else's position, I could judge an action, I could judge a behavior, I could judge a lifestyle. But I have no clue how God is viewing this person because I have no clue the challenges they're going through. There's an amazing story with a young lady. that She said when she was growing up, her father was hardly ever home. And he had a couple jobs and he would work for a month or two and he would lose that job and move on to the next. And uh, she never saw him. She never seemed to uh, feel that he loved her at all. And eventually when she was 10 years old, he left the home one day in the morning, didn't see him again. So she said although she got older and she went on with her life, she, uh, she had her father call her and try to get in touch with her once in a while, but she had no interest. And she went 10 years without speaking to her father at all. However, she felt bad and she was having a hard time with relationships and she was seeing a therapist and the therapist said, you know what, if you could somehow rectify your relationship with your father, that might be helpful to move forward. So she was very nervous. How am I going to find him? She lived in a different state now. But as she tracked him down, she didn't call him, but she did a research on the internet. She found out the address. She travels quite a distance, and uh, she sees herself pulling up to this big brick building. It was not a residential area at all. And she sees the, the sign. It's a nursing home. Her father, who's in his 50s, is in a nursing home. So she walks in. And uh, she meets up with her dad, after not seeing him for 10 years. He walks up to her with a walker. He seems totally out of it. He recognizes who she is, and they embrace. And she realized in that moment, there was a lot going on when I was younger that I didn't, I wouldn't pick up on. But my dad wasn't around because he wasn't healthy. The man was sick. And she says that now, every year at my birthday, I call him because I know he wants to wish me happy birthday. He can't get around to calling me, but when I call him and I let him know it's my birthday, he loves to hear from me. Now, we don't always have that extreme of an example. It could be if you speak to your wife, she would say, yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. It could be. But to realize that when we're looking at somebody else and we're asking ourselves, how could you be so dysfunctional? Why can't you just get yourself together? Get organized. Or to the contrary, why is he so obsessive about putting everything in its spot? Just relax and be normal. To realize that people have Bahira, we all have free will, but we don't know someone else's challenge. The Parsha this week, we have the destruction of Stome and Amora, the two evil cities. And the Torah tells us, V'yizker lakim es Avram, that Hashem remembered Avraham, V'yishlach es Lot mitoch ha'fecha, and therefore Hashem saved Lot, the nephew of Avraham, from the destruction. So what does that mean? Hashem remembered Avraham, and therefore He saved Lot. So Rashi comes along and he explains, in source number 6, that Shehaya Lot Yodeya, the, uh, the schus, the merit that Lot had to be saved from this destruction, 
is going back to the time when Avram took Lot together with him and his wife Sarai to Mitzrayim. They went to Egypt together. And he knew that if, if uh, he was her husband, they would kill him, they would take his wife. So he made up the plan, we're going to go here, we're in a very corrupt neighborhood, I'm your brother, let's keep it to that. That way, hopefully, we'll gain from the experience and I won't get killed. So says Rashi, that Lot knew that obviously Sarah was really his wife, and he knew the plan, and he didn't say anything. He kept his mouth shut. Shayachasa love, that he had compassion. He didn't want the, uh, the Mitzrim, the Egyptians, to kill Avraham. That was the schos, that was the merit as to why he was saved. Now you think about that for a moment. It seems ridiculous. Do you know the wonderful things that Lot did in his lifetime? He was a complicated personality. And he had, he had challenges of his own. But when you read about the way he invited the angels in, in the city of stone, the Torah tells us in this week's parsha that the, that the two malachim came in and Lot was sitting there by the entrance of the city. He was the judge of the, of the city for that day. He was appointed. And he turns to these strangers and he says, please come with me to my house. You sleep over. I'll wash your feet. I'll give you something to eat. Now he knew he was risking his life. There were clear policies in Stone. They were very selfish. They didn't want people coming in and taking their wealth and taking their belongings. So there was no visitors. And if you were bringing other people in, they were endangering the culture, there could be a death penalty. But Lot was risking his life to invite strangers into his home. Where did he learn this from? Rashi explains, Mi base of Ram Lamad lachsar al orchem. From the house of Avraham he learned that when strangers come in, you treat them like a bench, and you offer them food, shelter, a place to sleep. So he's risking his life to bring in strangers, but that wasn't his chus. That wasn't why he was saved. He was saved because he chose not to kill his sister. You think about it for a second, the biography of Lot. Art Scroll is going to come up with a new biography, have a picture of Lot with a big long white beard on the cover, and it's going to tell us his whole life story. When he was nine years old, he, he knew all of Tanakh by heart. And when he was 14 years old, he had a grasp on the entire shas of all of the Talmud. And when he was 24 years old, he didn't kill his sister. Why is that his chus? So explains Reb Dessler. He said, if you understand who Lot was, and you, you know that he had a big issue, a taiva, a desire for, for money. That was the initial reason he moved to Stom in the first place. He thought he could make it big. The real estate market was good there. He said, Lot wanted nothing more than to become mega, mega wealthy. And he knew that if he would reveal this secret to the Egyptians, he could make a lot on that deal. It was harder for him not to reveal that secret than it was for him to invite guests into his home because that was second nature. I don't have to work on that. I don't have to, to go against my, my teva to fight against my, my natural instincts. Of course I'll invite people in. That's what I learned from my, from my uncle. Avram does that. So the greatest merit Lot had was not revealing the identity of his sister. I think with this background, being able to, uh, to not judge people, not knowing other people's challenges, it makes forgiveness a lot easier. 
In a relationship, we have to forgive. Because as long as we bear a grudge, and we let something that he said, or something that she did, continue to, to rub me the wrong way, and therefore, I'm not smiling at you, and you're not smiling at me, and we keep on going back and forth, and tit for tat, and has a vicious cycle. If we can't forgive, we can't move on. The only ability we have to forgive is by realizing the way he's talking to me is not about me. It's his own issue. He's having a rough day. It doesn't mean anything about who I am. i give you an amazing example. This is uh, Mrs. Miriam Adler. She was 16 years old. She found herself on a train going to Bergen-Belsen. And at that point in time, her mother and baby brother had already died in the Ludz ghetto. Her three younger siblings uh, were sent straight to the gas chambers when they arrived at Auschwitz. And she was sitting there. She had no idea where her father was. Every other extended part of the family, gone. Sitting there in the train, feverish and not feeling well with no one else in her life. And then she hears a, a little girl's voice. Hi. What's your name? So Miriam turns around and she sees another girl about her same age. And she says, hi, my name is, is Sipa." And they realize they both lost their whole family and all they have is each other. So they decided at that point in time to become sisters. Wherever we go, I'm going to take care of you and you're going to take care of me. And that's how they lived through their experience in Bergen-Belsen when they were sent elsewhere they were always looking out for each other. There was one of the, the righteous Gentiles, her name was Mrs. Gertz. She had a soup kitchen and she would have some of the girls, the Jewish girls come from the camps to help her out in the kitchen. And when they were there, she would give them some food, take care of them. She was very fond of Miriam. So at one point she said to her, I want to do you a favor. I'm pretty sure they have in mind to kill all of you. Please come back with me, and I'll hide you in my house. You'll be safe. Miriam says back to Mrs. Gertz, Thank you so much, but I can't leave Sippa. We're sisters. I can't, I can't go into a safe hiding without Sippa. She goes back to the camp. Together, they're actually led on a death march. But Baruch Hashem, they were both liberated, May 8th, 1945. Now they're walking around the streets of Poland trying to find some family, some friends, someone they would recognize. In their journey, there's a, a person named Paula, who's a neighbor, one of the neighbors of Miriam's family, and she says, please come live with us. And right away, Miriam says back, can I bring my friend Sipa? And you could imagine the situation, they didn't have any money for themselves, they barely had enough food to feed their own families, so the answer was, we, we can't take in more than you, but we'd love to have you. And again, Miriam takes one for her friend, I'm not leaving Sippa. This is their journey together. Finally, Sippa finds her uncle, and she sees this man, she recognizes from years ago, Fete Shlaimi, Uncle Shlaimi. And they embrace, and they're crying, and basically, he says, I want you to come back with me and live with me. Sippa looks at Miriam and she says, this is my uncle. This is my chance. I love you. And she left. So Mrs. Yael Mermelstein, who's a well-known author in the Jewish world, she was interviewing her grandmother who was telling her this story. And she turns to her grandmother and she says, did you ever speak to that person again? 
What a, what a lowly, disgusting human being. Did I ever see her again? And Mrs. Miriam Adler turns to her granddaughter and says, Do you know who that person is? That's Mrs. Goldstein. Mrs. Goldstein was a good friend of Mrs. Adler for decades. Decades, best friends. So she's wondering, how did you do that? How do you, how do you even look at her after her neglecting you like that? This is the line from Mrs. Adler. She said, who was I to judge her? Everyone has their own way of dealing with things. Her way wasn't necessarily my way. I forgave her. I moved on. Being able to forgive is not about the other person. And, and, and this is often so misunderstood. I don't want to forgive him. I don't think he deserves forgiveness. It's not about him deserving anything. It's about you. For me to continue to be normal and healthy and be able to, to thrive in relationships, I need to forgive people. Otherwise, I'm limited and restricted my whole life. And there's an amazing comment of the Orachayim. Orachayim says that when Hashem first spoke to Avraham, Hashem told him to leave and to go to the land that I will show you. And like we mentioned last week, Lot travels together with his wife and his nephew Lot. According to one interpretation of the Orachayim, Avraham was not supposed to bring Lot with him. Why did he do so? He didn't fully understand. He misunderstood the instructions of Hashem and he brought Lot with him. Now the entire time that Lot was with Avraham, Avram was unable to have any communication with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The nevuah, the prophecy that he, that he received initially, that was only in a state of, of tahara and purity, but having Lot by his side, he wasn't able to attain that same level of connection. And he knew that. So on one hand, you put yourself in the mind of Avraham, I gotta get rid of this kid. He's holding me down. Literally, I can't speak to God. So just get rid of him. Why didn't he? Says the Orachayim, because Avraham knew that if I were to tell him he's not wanted, he would feel bad. He'd feel bad. Who cares that he would feel bad? He's, 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 he's squelching your whole spiritual existence. Get rid of the kid. He's a leech. I can't get rid of him because I would hurt his feelings. It wasn't until there was this conflict between the shepherds at that point, based on the realization that it's the best thing for me and for you for us to separate, then he said, he no let's go our, our own separate directions. But if it's just about me, even though your presence is, is restricting my spiritual connection, that's no reason for me to hurt your feelings. The, 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 the life, the, the view, the vision... Even though someone might be holding me back, it's always a question of, what's the right thing to do? And in relationships, when we find ourselves constantly complaining about a spouse, or a child, or a parent, or a sibling, it's always focused on me. This is the way I feel. This is the way that she makes me feel. This is the way that when he says this, I, I always think about this, and therefore I can't do X, Y, and Z. Now, Baruch Hashem, we live in a, in a time where we've embraced the psychological realities that people have feelings and we, we understand the emotions of a human being. We're not robots. But if I'm totally focused on the way I feel every second of the relationship, that's not going to get me very far. 
The mantra needs to be, it's a paradigm shift, and this is not what Western society teaches us. The mantra needs to be, not how do I feel, but what am I here to do? What's my job? The son of Rav Chaim Velazhin, Rav Chaim Velazhin, who was the great disciple of, Vil, of the Vilna Gon, he writes in, in the introduction to the Nefesh Chaim. that was the great work by his father. He said, my father of Chaim Velazhin would always tell me, Lo la'atzmo nivra, you weren't created for yourself. We're here to serve a purpose. We're here to do our job. It's not about me. In a relationship, that could make it or that could break it. There's a Medish Rabbah that takes place later on when Avram is now faced with the challenge, who do I give the blessings to? In the beginning of Lech Lecha, Hashem gives the most beautiful and precious gift in the world to Avraham, which is, through you, blessings will be transferred. You have the ability to bless. What does that mean? Well, we see it means a lot. The destiny of the Jewish people, the future of Klal Yisrael, is somehow embedded in these brachos. And that's why it's such a big deal with Yaakov getting the bracha from Yitzchak. So now Avram is faced with the question, I'm not going to be here for much longer, who do I give the brachos to? Do I give it to my son Yitzchak? Or do I give them to Yishmael? Or my other children, the children of Keturah? Who do I bestow the blessings on? So we have the following quandary. This is the Medrash Rabbah in source number 11. Rabbi Chama Amar lo brachas el matanos nasen lo. Avram never gave the bracha to Yitzchak. He gave presents, but he never gave the blessings. Why not? Here's the analogy. Moshe lemelech shaya lo pardes. If you have a king that has a, an orchard. Masara oris and he gives it to a sharecropper. Your job is to watch the orchard, to water it, to keep things going and growing. And there were two trees that were interwoven to each other. One of them was a bright and, and beautiful tree, but the other one was a poisonous weed of sorts. The problem was they were interwoven. So the oris is standing there, the sharecropper is looking at this. Amar osa oris, imashka nizeh shel samachayim. If I give water, nutrients, to the one that's healthy, so by doing so, I'm also giving nutrients to the one that's poisonous. Vim eni mashka zeh shel samamavis. And if I therefore withhold the water from the poisonous root, so then I'll be withholding the water as well from the one that could thrive. So what do I do? Listen to these words. Chazer v'amar, he had the realization, the sharecropper, he took a step back and he said, Ana oris, I just work here. This is not my orchard. I just work here. Let the melech, let the balha, let the uh, owner of the orchard come in and make his own decisions. I just work here. Says the Medrash, that's what Avram said. How could I give the brachos to Yitzchak? If I do so, I'd be hurting the feelings of Yishmol and my other children. But what's my other option? Give the brachas to everybody? I can't do that either. I know the legacy in the future of Klal Yisrael is through Yitzchak. He's the one I'm passing on the torch. So what do I do? I realize that I only work here. I'm just doing my job. Hashem, whatever you feel is best, go for it. I'm stepping out for this one. If you have those words in mind, and in, in the yeshiva that I was zochah to go to, the head of the yeshiva 
would always say in, in difficult situations where he felt that he would move in a direction, although it could be beneficial, and although we could build or we could spread Torah, but if you're doing something that's not erlich, it's not honest, it's not the right thing, you have to say these words, Orasani, I just work here. I can't do something that I don't believe in. I can't compromise on my values. So when it comes to relationship, if we have that mantra, it's not about me, I have to try my best, and I have to know my limitations. One, one, one block that I can never go through is I can't hurt you. Even if that means I'm not accomplishing, I can't hurt you. We mentioned the, uh, the Baba Vareva. We spoke about him quite, quite a lot during Tishbov. The Baba Vareva Shlomo Halberstam, he survived the war with his son. Uh, it's an amazing thing that his father was the head of the, of the dynasty. And during the war, really, all of the Hasidim were wiped out, save two, three hundred. The Shlomo Halberstam survives the war. He moves to America. And um, through his efforts and through his personality, he was able to create a vibrant movement that had more Hasidim than they had in pre-war Europe. Now, like all good organizations, there's always conflict with other organizations. And there was one particular time where uh, there was a different group sending out pamphlets, speaking negatively about a decision that the Baba Vareva made. Putting him down, disgracing him, disrespecting him. So he got together with all of his chassidim, with his disciples. It was during a shalashudis, a third meal. And he said to them as follows. He said, I am fully aware of what's going on outside. I know about the rumors, and I know about what they're spreading. I have already forgiven them. I mochel belev sholem. That means nothing to me. But listen very closely. He looked around the entire room, and he said, if anybody sitting here starts a machlokis, starts an argument with them to defend my honor, I want to make it very clear, I will not forgive you in this world or the next. It's not about me. It's about doing the right thing. We, uh, we read in Bereshis that during this quarrel between the shepherds of Avram and the shepherds of Lot, and Avram comes to Lot and he says, you know what, we should separate. And based on what we've learned, it was at that moment he realized that it was the best for both of them. It wasn't just for a selfish interest of being able to have prophecy. So the, uh, the Pasuk tells us, that Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan. And uh, that's where he journeyed. He went eastward. And the Pardu Ishmael Achiv, the two brothers, the two kinsmen, separated and went their own ways. Avram Yoshev Eretz Canaan. Avram was living in the land of Canaan. Velot Yoshev Bar Stom. And Lot was living in the cities of the plain, pitching his tents until stone. <laughs> Says the Balhaturim. The Balhaturim often has amazing gematrias, putting together the numeric value to give us a deeper insight. <clears throat> he says, if you look at the last letters of verse 11, 
The last three words, look at the last letter of each of those three words, and the last letter of the first word in verse 12, it says, V'yipardu ish me'al achiv, and then Avram. So the last letter, Shin, Lamid, Vav, Mem, spells Shalom. Says the Baal HaTurim, that Avram understood the only way to have peace was through separation. And I think this is an important point. There are certain relationships, and no matter how much we hear about the Torah's perspective on enhancing relationships, there are certain relationships that are toxic, that are poison. Where I know after much analysis and consultation with others that having this person in my life if it's a friend, if it's someone at work, whoever it may be, it's not healthy for me. And therefore, sometimes the answer is, there needs to be a separation. And that's true in rare circumstances, even within a family. And then these are tragic cases. But sometimes, if, if there's, a, there's a relationship that's so poisonous, it's bringing you down, this is never a decision to make on our own, but to be able through Shoalaitza, through speaking to others and getting advice, sometimes the only way to maintain shalom is through having a clear separation. In the, the, the Pasuk in the, the beginning of Vizos Bracha, that's the very last parsh of the Torah. The Torah tells us, Vihibishur and Melech, that there's a king in Yeshurin, in Kla Yisrael, there's a Melech. When is that the case? That's only when the Jewish people come together. When we come together with unity, then there's a king. So what is that referring to? Rashi explains that when we come together in one group, and there's peace between different factions of Jews and different types of Jews, who malcolm? When we create that reality, then Hashem is truly our King. But when there is dispute and there is argument and there is strife, then Hashem is not our King. What does that mean? It's a nice thing to say. There's actually a song now by Baruch Levine based on this Rashi. But what does that mean? When we're working together and there's shalom, there's unity, Hashem is our King. And when we're you know, arguing and, and having these bitter conflicts, Hashem is not our king. What does that mean? So the Dasikadin, one of the great commentators of the 13th century, he explains Rashi. He adds only a few words, but he explains the intent of Rashi. He says, Kolomar kishi Yisrael yachad When the Jewish people are together in brotherhood and friendship, then Hashem is the king over them. In a time of dispute, when we're arguing and we can't get along, then it's as if Hashem is not our king. It sounds like what the Dasikanim is saying is the only way to have true friendship, the only way to keep real achva, real unity is through a belief that HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs the show. If I believe wholeheartedly that Hashem is in charge, and Hashem is orchestrating every step of my life, then it makes it easier for me not to constantly be judging you. 
And it makes it easier for me to forgive you because I know it's all Hashem. Hashem's in charge here. It makes, me, it makes it easier for me to love you and to take care of you and to just focus on what's my job, not about how I feel. Okay, it's hard. What's my job here? All of these things that are required to have real productive relationships, it's all based on the knowledge that there's a melech, there's a king. If you have that mindset, it changes everything in every relationship. I'll tell you an amazing uh, story somebody told me. I knew him for a couple years. And, um, you know, a regular average person, never looked at him as a hero. But he told me that growing up, he had a very, very difficult relationship with both his mom and dad. But his mom was actually abusive to his father. To the point where the, the level of screaming that would happen in the house, the way she would treat his father, even physical abuse. He told me, I remember vividly walking downstairs, it was in the morning, he says it was Wednesday morning before school, and my mom and dad are fighting as usual, no surprise there. My mother though in her rage opens up the kitchen drawer, grabs a knife, and she stabs my father in the shoulder. Blood was squirting out everywhere. And a Baruch Hashem, he was taken to the hospital, and he was okay. But he said, after, after being exposed to that, I realized, as soon as I can, i got to get out of here. This is not a good place to continue my life. So he left when he was 18 years old. He moved to a different state far away. He had a younger sister who was stuck in the house for a few more years until eventually she was able to move on. Her sister never spoke to her mother. Never spoke to her. And he would speak to her once in a while, but obviously he was living his life with these real deep feelings of animosity and resentment. He says that he gets a call from his mom that she was diagnosed with a very serious disease. At this point, his parents were separated. His dad was out of the picture. His sister was out of the picture as well, even though she was more local than he was. And uh, she was asking for his help. The mother was asking for her son's help. And his first response was, who do you think you are? After all these years of neglect, after all these years of abuse, the way you treated me and my sister and my father, and now you want me to give up everything in my life and, and come and fly to New York and help you? <sighs> Sorry, Ma. Deal with it. That was his initial response. He said that he, he started helping her a little bit. He would drive her to appointments. But the whole time, he, he was doing it with resentment. So he realized that he can't continue this way. I either have to be fully in or fully out. But I can't be half-baked. So he told me I sat down for 20 minutes, and I tried to clear my mind. I just thought, what does God want from me? What's the right thing to do? And again, in a relationship, if we could have that clarity, we'd have different relationships. After 20 minutes of thinking, he decided, no one else in the world is here for my mother. She doesn't have any friends. None of the family will speak to her. This is something I have to do. He decided I'm going to do it, and he did it. For the next five years, he was with her day and night. He was taking her to every appointment. He was keeping track of the different doctors and the medicines. He was there to the grueling, bitter end. And he told me that experience changed my life forever. 
being able to, I, I can't forgive her for what she did to me. She was, a, she was very wrong. But I, I don't know what she was going through. I don't know how much free will she had. She was not a good mother, and I'm not going to convince myself otherwise. That was the reality. But it was the right thing for me to do to let go of that and to help her to move on. So based on the Harvard study, almost 80 years now, it's clear, it's crisp, it's vivid. If we want to live long, happy, and healthy lives, we have to have good relationships. That has to be priority one. The way to accomplish that is, number one, we have to remind ourselves, I'm not in someone else's shoes. When you give me your glasses, it's a warped reality. That's because they're not my eyes, they're not my glasses. We have to remind ourselves that he has a different brain chemistry. She has a different upbringing. That leads us to step number two, which is the ability to forgive. To be able to forgive, it's not about doing a favor to somebody, it's doing a favor for ourselves. Think of Shlomo Halberstam being able to say, don't create a machlokas, if you do that with them, I'm not going to forgive you. You think of Mrs. Miriam Adler, who had the ability to say, listen, I, I gave up two times to be saved, to be here and be your sister and be your support, and, and you left me in the dark, in the dust. But that was when you were 16 years old, and we could still be best friends. I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to forgive you because I need to move on with my own life. But the guiding mantra, and I think this with the Torah philosophy helps us more so than any psychological book you'll ever read. You have to remember, oh, Hashem, <laughs> there's a God who's in control of everything. And therefore, it's not about me. I'm here for a limited time. I just have to do my job. If that job is being a father or a caring spouse or a mother or a daughter, that's my purpose here. It might not always be pleasant, but it doesn't have to be pleasant. I have to do my job. And I think from this last story, we could internalize this message. When we do something that may not be easy, but we know it's the right thing to do, that could change our lives forever. We should be zochet to have wonderful, healthy relationships. Have a wonderful evening.